Good evening, everyone. We're ready to start now. Thank you. Now, thank you very much for joining us on this even more exciting than expected night um, for a discussion about Brexit. Uh, this, as we all know, was going to be an election that was all about Brexit. Uh, it turns out not to have been so much about Brexit, at least during the campaign, when we didn't hear a great deal about anybody's plans for Brexit. Um, so I think, given what we're seeing now, it may well be that we have a lot to talk about. Uh, so I'm afraid that David Goodhart hasn't been able to make it this evening, but we do have three fantastic panellists here. Uh, on my, uh, so on my left is Sarah Hobolt, who is the... Um, Sutherland Professor at the European Institute. Um, we also have Professor Anand Manon on my far left, Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London, and um, also Professor Simon Hicks, the Harold Lasky Professor of Political Science, again here of LSE. So what I'm going to do is ask each of the speakers to talk for five minutes and then we're going to open up the discussion between us and then to questions. Now, as you may have heard before, please don't stick up your hand to ask a question because we only have 35 minutes. Uh, instead, could you write down any questions on the pieces of paper you've been given and give them to the stewards who will be ready to collect them? Uh, welcome if you're watching us via webcast. You can uh, tweet us questions. Just use hashtag um, LSEG2017 and we will hopefully be able to take a selection of those as well. So, um, let's kick off. Uh, Sarah. Thank you so much. Um, so yes, this panel is obviously about Brexit. We know that this was meant to be the Brexit election, but as we already heard, I mean, the big question is, was this then about Brexit and will it make a difference to Brexit? If this exit poll is right, uh, will it mean that Brexit won't happen, as some might hope, or in some different form? I mean, the first point I think I want to make is that this wasn't really a Brexit election and therefore it hasn't really given a mandate to a change in position on Brexit. It wasn't a Brexit election because the two major parties took a rather similar view on Brexit. In other words, the Brexit means Brexit is going to go ahead and it's going to go ahead in some form which means leaving the single <coughs> European market. And also Labour, while they might have had a slightly different position, they preferred not to talk about it. So we can't say that a better performance uh, by Labour looks like it's really sort of a vote against the Brexit position set up by May. Another reason, of course, this wasn't so much about Brexit was it was overshadowed by events. It's overshadowed, of course, by two terrible terror attacks that made it much more about security than it otherwise would have been, and also overshadowed by the focus on welfare issue and the focus on the fact that Theresa May made this a campaign about her as a strong and stable leader, yet uh, she also made a very public U-turn on her social care uh, plan that was then attacked by Labour. And the final reason I think it wasn't really ever going to be uh, about Brexit to the extent was in fact... Remainers, while they haven't changed their mind about that it was wrong for Britain to vote to leave the European Union, are rather split when it comes to what kind of Brexit they want. In fact, quite a few Remainers in our research, so about 40% of Remainers do want a kind of hard Brexit set out by Theresa May. So in that sense, that was never going to be the winning formula uh, for Labour and indeed the Liberal Democrats. So just final point is that 
Theresa May ostensibly set out this election to strengthen her hand in EU negotiations. I never find that, found that plausible, the idea that all of a sudden the EU would roll over simply because she had a slightly bigger majority. <laughs> now, of course, it looks like she won't get this slightly bigger majority. So what does that mean? It means she'll be weakened within her own party. If she does survive as prime minister, it will be as a, as a, lot, a, a much weaker prime minister within a conservative party. A lot of conservative parliamentarians will no doubt blame this uh, result on her um, and it's also meant a sort of distraction, the clock is ticking uh, to the end of the article 50 negotiations until Britain leaves the European Union in March 2019 and there's very little time left and the more turmoil that follows, uh, whichever results we'll have tonight, you know, the less time there is for Britain to get what they really want which is also some kind of, uh, at least a framework for a trade uh, agreement uh, that will follow once Britain has left uh, so it's not a night that has, I think, in any way so far strengthened uh, the UK's position in the Brexit negotiations. So thinking on my feet, having seen the exit poll, um, I actually think we might turn out uh, saying that this election was far more about Brexit than we expected. Uh, a few weeks ago, it looked like there was going to be a partial realignment of the electorate around Brexit in that the UKIP voters, the Leave voters, were going to come out in very large numbers and vote Conservative, and the Remain voters were going to be largely split, with Conservative Remain voters still voting Conservative, Lib Dem remained voters voting Lib Dem and Labour remained voters voting Labour and nothing much was going to change. So the realignment was going to be on the Leave camp. I think we may actually come out of this election saying this was more about Brexit in terms of realignment at the electorate level than, than we thought it was going to be in the following sense. In that what we might see is that Labour increasing its votes significantly in a lot of urban areas where there's large Remain support and losing a lot of votes in rural areas where there's large Brexit support, leave support. So, you know, we're seeing, what we've seen is a mobilisation of urban, younger, more highly educated, pro-immigration, pro-European voters. Um, it looks like what we're hearing is the Conservatives could lose a lot of seats in, in London, could lose some of the suburban satellite seats around London and around some of the northern cities, but they could win Labour seats from some of the rural areas in the north, which have been traditional labour seats, but have not been a kind of post-industrial labour seats. They're rural areas in the north, or suburban areas in the north, that have been voting labour because they just hated the Conservatives. But these are, these are older voters who voted in large numbers to leave the EU, and they may well have come out in this election and voted for Theresa May. So we could see a realignment in the electorate. What does this mean, actually, in terms of where we're heading on Brexit? I think it probably means we're not heading to quite such a hard Brexit as Theresa May has been painting. She's been painting the hardest of hard possible Brexits you can imagine. And if anybody ever said, well, you're being a bit soft on this, she'd say, oh, no, I'm not. I'm being as hard as I possibly can on everything. Um, I don't think that that's actually what a lot of Leave voters voted for last year. I mean, if we, think, if we look back and look at what Boris Johnson wrote in that article in The Telegraph on the Monday morning after the... Brexit referendum on the Thursday before, he set out in his Telegraph article a soft version of Brexit. He said, I think that this wasn't about immigration, I think this was about sovereignty, and I think that you know, we should stay in the single market, at least for a quite a long transition period, and primary should be protecting the economy and financial services and their access to the single market. 
Roll forward now, and we've got Theresa May saying, well, of course, we voted uh, in the referendum to leave the single market, and we voted. uh, It was all about immigration. Uh, And so, you know, I think we'll start to see voices within the Conservative Party who've been quiet until now. Bear in mind, Theresa May is not that popular within her own party and within the senior ranks of her own party. There aren't really Mayites. The Conservative Party has always had a kind of more free market Thatcherite ring. She's far more, she's far too left-wing for them, And they've had, since Cameron and Osborne, a more kind of socially liberal wing. And she's far too authoritarian for them. So you can see how the kind of pincers within the party are now going to jump at this and say, we held our nose to back her, a kind of left-wing social authoritarian leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, We've backed her, and it's completely failed. So now I think we're going to see them saying, well, hang on a minute, actually... We actually don't particularly like this really hard of hard version of Brexit you're painting. We only were in favour of that to get rid of UKIP. UKIP have gone. Now, actually, maybe we we could actually go for a softer version of Brexit. And I think that's where we may see voices like that. We may see Osborne pushing that. We may see an intervention from Cameron. We may see an intervention from some of the Conservative backbenchers who until now have been quiet. So I think we could see a slight change of tack. It's not that I don't think this means we're not going to leave the EU. I think we are going to leave the EU we might leave the EU on slightly different terms than I think Theresa May was expecting a few weeks ago. Thank you. Unlike both uh, Sarah and Simon, I don't study voting behaviour, I don't study elections, so I really don't understand what's going on, which I think puts the majority <laughs> in the country if not the room. Uh, So I want to make three or four comments. Was this meant to be the Brexit election? Kind of. I don't think Theresa May wanted this to be a Brexit election, in the sense that I don't think Theresa May wanted us to have a debate about Brexit. I think she wanted us to have a debate about who should be in charge of Brexit. What has been striking to me in this campaign is that no one has wanted to talk about what is the biggest political decision we have taken in this country for decades. Labour didn't want to talk about it at all, for very obvious reasons, and the Tories wanted to talk about leadership but not the details. The second thing I'd say is that, I mean, I don't know whether I believe the exit polls or not, but the size of the majority was really irrelevant in terms of what happened in Brussels. I think this was one of the great myths that the Tory party tried to sell us, which is that a bigger majority makes our negotiating position stronger. It really doesn't, because the European Union has laid out its guidelines. We know what the European Union wants from these negotiations, and the European Union isn't going to move on the basis of whether the majority is 5, 10, or 50. In fact, I think Theresa May had it the wrong way around. What history shows us is that in international negotiations, you're stronger the weaker you are at home. Think back to the Maastricht negotiations. John Major was well-liked in the European Council. He turned up at the European Council for those negotiations, and he said, look, I'd like to compromise, but if I do, Michael Howard will stab me in the back. All the other members of the European Council read the the English newspapers. They knew this was true. They gave him a very good deal. If Theresa May were to have, which looks unlikely now, turned up in Brussels with a big majority, what the other EU member states would have done is turn around to her and say, well, look, you can do what you want. Compromise. So actually, I think we were sold a pup from the start of this election in the sense that 
the size of our majority was not going to help her negotiate in Brussels. Now, what happens next? I really don't know is the simple answer. But what I would say is this. As Simon was absolutely right in saying, the Conservative Party have backed Theresa May despite the fact that many in that party disagree with her on lots of things. There are parts of the Conservative Party that disagree with her on a model of Brexit, so people like Boris Johnson are on record as saying migration shouldn't be what this Brexit deal is about. Others in the Conservative Party have said, actually, the single market is not a red line for us. We'd like to stay in because it will limit the economic damage. The reason the party has been remarkably loyal to her since her election in July is because she could sell herself as a winner. That, it would appear from the exit poll, is not something she can sell herself as in the future. And as soon as that varnish is gone, then the party are going to start to have an open debate. My suspicion has always been that if her majority was lower than about 20 to 30, there will be a leadership contest. If it's lower than about 10, she's going to have to go. At that point, the Conservative Party starts to debate what it never debated in the referendum campaign itself or the election campaign, which is what should Brexit mean for a Conservative Party. At that point, I don't want to predict what happens. All I want to say is we might well end up with a Conservative government that is in favour of a very, very different model of Brexit to the one that Theresa May unilaterally from the time of the Conservative Party conference last October, imposed on her party and on the country, which, if these exit polls are right, we are about, for the first time and long overdue, to have a proper debate about. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, we've just been joined by David Goodhart, and he's just going to be joining us in the discussion here, I think, because he hasn't heard the previous talk. Um, So, some uh, thoughts there about whether we're going to get as hard or soft a Brexit as we thought before. But I wanted to ask the uh, panellists, is this a verdict on Brexit, or is it a verdict on Theresa May? Because, let's face it, she has had an unimpressive campaign. Is it just that people are turning against May, or are they actually turning against Brexit? Simon? Uh, Well, it's not as if Corbyn set out a radically different version of Brexit. I mean, you know, it's not not as if this was an election that was Theresa May saying a really hard version of Brexit and Corbyn saying, well, overturn Brexit. And don't forget the Lib Dems are going to come out of this with quite a disastrous election result. Uh, They went into this expecting that... They could mobilise a large chunk of those Remainers by, by, by promising a second referendum. And at the time, I thought, actually, that was a pretty risky strategy because the perception, I think, for most of the British public was, well, the public's voted for this. We probably should get on with it. Uh, and so it looked like then a party called a Liberal Democratic Party was actually going against the democratic will of the people. Probably not a good idea. Um, and so I think we don't know whether really the vote has been against a particular version of Brexit. Um, I think what we will see, I think the direction of Brexit may be less to do with the outcome of the election and more to do with now what goes on inside the Conservative Party. David, you've written extensively about immigration, freedom of movement. That was undoubtedly, I think, one of the driving forces behind the Brexit vote. Does tonight 
it's early days. Does tonight tell us anything about what the public thinks about freedom of movement, whether it wants to go with a hard Brexit, which to curtail freedom of movement would entail leaving the single, leaving the single market? Well, I, I don't think we have any idea. I mean, you know, t- we don't... You know, tonight could be anything from a hung parliament to a 70 or 80 majority for Theresa May. Um, you know, g- given past experience of exit polls and the particularly sort of peculiar circumstances of this election, which I think, you know, leave kind of 80 or 90 seats that are now, you know, on, on, a, on, a, on a, you know, a hair's... Whatever it is, whatever it is. Knife edge. Knife edge, sorry. <laughs> uh, um, but, no, I mean, Theresa May you know, is, a, is a much diminished figure, whatever happens. Um, and, you know, she's clearly not... I mean, she should have had a majority of 200, given the circumstances. I mean, you know, this was a kind of khaki election. This was going to sort of Falklands election. Uh, and then we had two bonds, uh, you know, and she was a Home Secretary, you know, kind of... Uh, as she's been... She's turned out to be... It, you know, we do have a presidential system in this country. And if you can't perform adequately in a TV studio with Andrew Neil, you know, people will judge you very, in a very hostile way. And I think a lot of people have thought that she's kind of not up to the job. Um, and... But as I say, I mean, she may yet turn out to be, you know, the, the triumphant winner of the night. She may have a majority of 70 or 80. Um, I mean... The polls that I saw, you know, there was a kind of a big YouGov poll that, uh, that suggested, you know, three-quarters of the population, 80% of the population were kind of inured to, one way or another, inured to a kind of moderately hard Brexit. Mm-hmm. I mean, a Brexit which, which did involve leaving the single market um, and, uh, and, 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 and abandoning freedom of movement. And, yes, I mean, I think immigration has been absolutely central to, to the vote. Um, and I think it goes back to the disastrous decisions that were made in the, the disastrous decision that was made in 2004 to open our labour market seven years before we had to to Central and Eastern Europeans, um, which meant that you know instead of the 15,000 that w- was predicted, you know a million and a half people came over the next four or five years. And it, what it alerted people to was just how radically the European Union had changed, just how much it interfered in the entrails of everyday life. You know, the, the organisation that they'd kind of signed up to back in the 1970s, which was a, some rather kind of, bureau, you know, it was a bit like NATO, some sort of rather bureaucratic thing involving kind of high-level negotiations over trade that didn't really change very much. And suddenly, this really rather existential thing, you know, controlling who comes into your country, we discovered that we no longer had any control over. And, you know, we'd had, you know, the, the previous experience of immigration, the post-colonial immigration... From the, from the late 40s through to the 90s, you know, some, you know, been, there'd been friction in the early years, and then we'd got used to the fact that we were a multiracial, multi-ethnic country by the, by the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but that government had been able to bear that, had been able to respond to public opinion on this really existential point, and had been able to bring down the numbers. So we had, we had pretty well zero, even negative uh, immigration in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and next time, you know, the next wave, you know, post-97, big increase in immigration, then 2004, even bigger increase in immigration, we discover that our national government doesn't control this thing. It's a huge, huge deal. And I think it's you know, the biggest... Sing- you know, there are many reasons. The biggest single reason why people voted for Brexit. David, I'm going to pause you there. Anand. I mean, I understand why David wants to go off on a riff about this. 
But actually, the most striking thing, actually, one of the most striking things about this election, to me, has been the fact that the word immigration has hardly been mentioned by either party, which to me seems to indicate that in some way or another, Brexit was seen to have taken care of this. Brexit dealt with the immigration question. I mean, rightly or wrongly, there seems to have been a perception amongst the public that Brexit took care of this. And this election was about, well, I'm not even sure what this election was about, but it really wasn't about the two things that have dominated our elections in the past, which was the state of our economy or immigration. Uh, that raises all sorts of interesting questions for me about what happens in the future if we're dealing with a sort of transitional deal with the European Union, if freedom of movement is allowed to continue in some form or other. But for the moment, this election really wasn't something to do with the politics of immigration. It was something else. Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, what do you think? Is this, was it to do with the politics of immigration? Or is that all settled now? Have we decided that immigration is a bad thing and we've got to stop it? Or is the public mood liable to change in the way that we've seen the public attitude towards Theresa May change in a very few weeks? I mean, it's clearly not settled because what Theresa May said was she was going to reduce it to the tens of thousands. And I think Anand is right when he's saying, well, that in a sense took it off the table. Uh, a lot of people who voted leave voted because they were concerned about immigration, but they felt that in a sense by leaving the European Union that was taken care of and that was built into the Tory manifesto and even Labour was sort of not challenging that in, in a sense. But of course where it might return later on is if either that has some massive economic cost to actually reduce immigration in that way that you know the, the, the issue of the economy is going to come back. Of course the, so far the, the, the um, and it's, it's both parties, but particularly the Conservative Party has a kind of, you can have your cake and eat it, we can control immigration, but we're not going to cost that into our manifesto in terms of what is the, the real cost of, uh, of reducing immigration to the tens of thousands. And if they don't reduce immigration, we know that they've had a target before the Conservative government and it hasn't resulted in those, uh, those reduced levels of immigration. So if that's not reduced, will we then see the issue return? Very likely. So either way, whether it's a sort of massive recession or if it's you know, a failure to, to, uh, to keep the promises, uh, some of these issues about the economy, economy and immigration uh, could return. Of course, one of the interesting developments during the, during the uh, election was that we learned that mi uh, migration, net migration in particular, net migration from the EU, is already falling. So, in a sense, whatever the reasons behind that, whether it was because people... Were feeling were, were put off by Brexit, or whether there are more complex reasons going on. She, had, uh, Theresa May, had already, in a way, scored a win on that. Would you agree? Well, I mean, if you call a win to be in charge of a country that people don't want to live in, yeah. <laughs> then yes, a that's a massive win. win. A win in her terms. Uh, I mean, we haven't done anything about immigration. All that's happened is that people have thought, uh, "Don't want to live there." I'm not sure, I'm, you know. Well, it just shows they have a very instrumental attitude to our country. They don't want to live here because the pound has fallen 15%. Well, that, that is the primary reason. Um, yeah, it doesn't say anything about people's attitude to the country. It shows, you know... Also, many know, more Brits well, leaving. Yeah, no, there are not many more Brits leaving. It's mainly because, you know, a lot of people from Europe have decided that they can earn more if they go to Germany. 
Well, no, I agree. I agree. Is that's a kind of gypsy economy? I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, it's partly to do with that, absolutely. I mean, if you've got a 20%... Okay, so it's completely to do with that. I mean, the really interesting... No, I don't... No, no, I think that's nonsense. I don't think it's completely to do with that. Okay, but, but look, the interesting point, Nick Clegg claims that we still have the opportunity to stay within the single market because he thinks that they will now make an offer to us that they failed to make to David Cameron, the offer that they should have made, which is that we should be able to have qualifications on freedom of movement. Now, do you think that is true? Do you think it is possible that we could get to a position, particularly you know, with, a, with a, perhaps a weakened uh, Theresa May, a weakened British government, going to these negotiations? What if, is it possible the European Union might say, all right, we will, we will say to you what we should have said to you, what we should have said to David Cameron, is that yes, we will have a, we, you will be able to restrict some of, the, some of freedom of movement, um, and in, in return for that, you know, you, you know, we will accept you as some sort of, you know, uh, semi-member of the European Union. I mean, is that, is, is that a possibility? I mean, that's, that, that's what we should be talking Simon, about. Simon, is, is it a possibility? I, you know, it's possible to answer that question because it was never really asked by our government in the first place. There were think tanks in Berlin and in Brussels who were actually raising exactly that possibility. Bruegel was making that, that, that offer of that possibility to the UK uh, in the proposal they were making to the German government and to the French government. Uh, you know, so think tank in Brussels with very senior people, including Pisani Ferry, now the chief economic advisor to Macron. He wrote a paper saying this is exactly the offer that the EU should be making to the UK government. Yeah, we never actually asked it. Don't be vindictive against the Brits. Yes, yes, but, 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 they're but, but, generous. But yeah. we didn't actually, we, we, we never actually asked for that. We might actually ask for that now. So we don't know if we're not going to ask for it. She preempted it by making that speech at the Conservative Party conference, saying this election, the primary thing we want to do is bring down immigration numbers, and therefore we have to leave the single market. And the EU was like, okay, we've been saying cherry, you can't cherry pick, you can't cherry pick, cherry, you can't cherry pick, and she's heard that. But I don't think that question was really tested. So you might be right, but I don't know whether that's been tested. Let me just say one other thing. The whole debate about immigration, it's interesting how it's focused hugely on EU migration. What we know is that net migration from outside the EU over the last 10 years has been running much higher than inside the EU. We just did a poll uh, survey last week where for the first time we asked voters what their preferences were about their attitudes towards EU and non-EU migration, what their ideal numbers were for, for net immigration. And no matter how you cut it, leave versus remain, young versus old, highly educated versus low educated, British voters want to reduce non-EU migration more than they want to reduce EU migration. This is the elephant in the room that we haven't really talked about. And Anand and I were travelling up and down the country during the Brexit negotiations, and the number of times people stood up in the audience and went, we, we need to leave the EU so we can reduce immigration, so we can stop people coming from India and Pakistan. And I was like, well, hang on a minute. Oh, aren't they a joke, the British public? They're so fucking stupid. I'm not saying it's stupid. You are also wrong. I mean, in that um, uh, immigration from the EU is actually now higher than it is from outside the EU. Only and now. we have been, no, uh, between 2010 and 2013, immigration from outside the EU fell by about 100,000. Do you remember? Yes. It was about. When, when, when the coalition took over in 2010, net immigration was running at about 230,000, 240,000. It came down about 100,000. And that was almost entirely by, restrict well, entirely by restricting non-EU immigration, so, the, you know, abuse of the, 
uh, of the student route and so on in language schools that, that were closed down. David, I'm going to just pause you there because otherwise we won't have time for questions from the audience. So right. forgive me for cutting you off there. Uh, it's not just because you swore, honestly. Um, is this the end of authoritarian populism is a question we've been asked. Alan, is it the end of authoritarian, uh, authoritarian populism? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've sort of, we've, we've sort, we've sort of gone back to the future. We all of a sudden have a two-party system, uh, in England at least, that looks very familiar from the 70s or even the 50s. I think the way to answer that question is to figure out what Brexit is going to mean. Brexit's going to happen. And if people are happy with the way Brexit happens in the sense that, A, it doesn't crash the economy, and B, it leads to the fall in migration that people are after, then maybe, because as we see from the, the collapse in the UKIP vote, then for the moment, populism has been incorporated into our two-party system. If what Brexit means is widespread job losses, widespread increases in the cost of living without any increase in wages, if it means, which it could well mean, that actually migration doesn't fall in the sense that the government realises it needs to keep on letting people into this country, whether as students or as migrant workers or whatever, then I suspect that this is a pause and that populism will be back in the relatively near future. What do you think, Sarah? Is this a sea change? I mean, in terms of authoritarian populism, you can say that, I mean, Theresa May in many ways have been quite successful in certainly adopting quite authoritarian positions on a number of issues. I mean, going around saying, oh, the, you know, the best way we can deal with terrorism is just to tear up human rights. I mean, it's, it's, some might argue a fairly authoritarian position to take. And also then on, on economic policies, moving to the left in terms of certainly maybe not in actual policy, but certainly in rhetoric. Um, so she's done what a lot of far-right parties have done across Europe. And I think if we see tonight that UKIP has done a lot worse than in previous elections. Part of it is because she's adopted a lot of the positions of UKIP, uh, both uh, on economic and, and but, but I mean, authoritarian populism, I mean, you wouldn't call her an authoritarian populist, but in terms of a lot of the appeal of those sort of parties, uh, why we don't see a sort of far-right challenge is partly due to the electoral system and partly due to the fact that the Conservative Party adopt a lot of these positions. Youth turnout, we've got one question about this. Could youth turnout be the big story of this election? Because we have had many elections when people uh, have promised that uh, yeah, the youth vote will turn out. They haven't. We haven't got the figures yet, but judging by anecdotal evidence, it looks as though it could be up. Is this going to be a big story tonight, Simon? It's very early to tell. I mean, one thing that was interesting watching the, what explained the, the huge variance we saw in the polling numbers over the last few weeks is that the different polling companies had had different ways of modelling turnout, particularly turnout for under-30s. Mm. If they expected a high level of turnout for under-30s, they were predicting a much closer election. Mm. If they're expecting similar levels of turnout for under-30s, as in previous elections, they were ex expecting a bigger Conservative majority. Mm. One thing that I thought was, was potentially heading towards a higher turnout amongst youth voters is the fact that we've now got... We've moved from household registration to individual electoral registration. When they initially made that move, several thousand, mostly young people, several hundred thousand, mostly young people, dropped off the electoral register. They've probably now figured out how to get back on the electoral register with electoral... And so now they are registered, so when they show up to vote, they can vote. 
Equally, I think there was evidence that they were particularly mobilised in this election, whether it was by Corbyn, whether it was by Brexit, whether it was by the state of public services, concerns about education, whatever it was, it looked like they were more mobilised in this election than they were two years ago or perhaps uh, seven years ago. So, so it, it's too early to tell, but part of what might be behind what we're seeing with these exit poll numbers is the expectation or the, those exit pollsters finding, because when they're recording who's voting or who's coming out of those polling stations and filling in those polling cards and putting it in those exit ballot boxes. What they're also recording are other characteristics about those people like their age. So to help them model what's going on in the rest of the country. So this suggests to me that we are seeing higher levels of youth turnout than perhaps some pollsters were expecting. Anna, is that the case? Well, let me first admit to a sort of personal bias about this. I've got three... 18 to 25-year-olds in my house, and my, my, my concern about them is whether or not they can spell X rather than whether or not they actually <laughs> get out to vote. Uh, what I would say, though, is we, we, we live in a country where we have an ageing population. So, if, you know, one of, the, one of the great canards about the referendum is, oh, if only young people had turned out to vote, we could have gone a different way. What the British Election Survey tells us is 120% of 18 to 24-year-olds would have needed to vote and I'm not a quantitative political scientist, but I understand that's quite hard to achieve, <laughs> in order for the referendum result to have been overturned. There's a lack of these people in our country. We are overwhelmingly old. So whatever they do, if the old people go out, and John Curtis has said over and over again in this campaign, our politics is divided by age as never before. If the older people in our population go out and vote Conservative, they cannot outweigh them. Can I say one other quick thing on, on the age thing? I mean, we've seen a growing economic divide along age in the country that has not really been mobilised in a lot of previous elections. When you think about what has happened over the last 30 years in the country, we've seen a redistribution of wealth towards older groups in society, particularly with housing wealth and with pensions wealth. And what's happening with younger people in society, we've seen tighter job markets, rising costs of higher education, inability to get on the housing market. And so you can see this growing kind of economic interest divide amongst generations. And I, I, this kind of generational conflict has been coming. We've not yet seen it necessarily in elections. This might be the first one we've really seen it in. And, and just think about how appalling this election has been for younger people. It's been an election where a sensible debate we should have had about social care has been closed off because of cock-up in the Tory party. It's an election where the Labour Party has basically, via tuition fees, offered a massive tax break to the middle class. This is an election where the rich and the old do rather well. I mean, for all the rhetoric about us going back to the 1970s in economic interventionism, this has been an appalling election in terms of the politics of intergenerational strife. Let's briefly ask the audience, because there's a lot of younger people here, as you would expect at the LSE. Uh, hands up who thinks this has been an appalling election for young people. Uh, oh, not as many as I was expecting. Yes. Maybe 25%. Um, final, final question, uh, just for everyone, um, about a harder or softer Brexit. Can I ask you very briefly, before we wrap up, whether this election, do you think, will lead to, a, to an equally hard, uh, slightly harder or, or softer Brexit? David, very quickly. Well, uh, we have no idea what the outcome of the election is, so um, uh, I have no idea. No, it's, it's a simple answer. However, 
Um, this watch your space. Uh, I would like to, uh, just responding to the earlier question about authoritarian populism, I, what I would like people to think about is actually how extraordinarily unsuccessful populism has been in Europe in the last 20 years. I mean, it's, uh, you know, if, if you take 2002 as the kind of takeoff point for populist parties in Western Europe, when Le Pen Sr. got into the final round of the French election, when Pim Fortune blew up uh, you know, multicultural. I'm going to give you ten seconds. Uh, <laughs> sorry. But you were late. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was hanging around. I, was wait- I didn't know where to go. You know. um, your, 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 your systems are poor. Um, um, but there has since then, you know, populist parties have done very well throughout Europe, but they have not won a single, you know, with a possible exception, if you call it a populist decision of Brexit. You know, little old UKIP is by far the most successful populist party in Europe. No other party, um, many of them have been junior okay, partners I'm in government. To, I'm going to stop you there. Apologies, but I have to. Simon. Uh, you have my views. I think a lot depends on what happens in the Conservative Party. Will there be voices now saying, we don't like Theresa May, we want a softer version? I think there's been a lot of quiet backbenchers up to now who have been uncomfortable with where she's been taking the party and they may now step up, but too early to tell. Sarah? I think it will be difficult for the UK to, to stay in the single market, you know, for the positions that both parties have set out. I think one thing to look at is not just whether it will be sort of soft or hard Brexit, but whether there will be a deal at all, because I think there's a still a risk of a breakdown. Anand? One of the saddest things for me in this election has been listening to Jeremy Corbyn saying we want tariff-free access to the single market, which implies to me he doesn't understand what the single market is and that the British people have not had a debate about what EU membership is. I don't know what's going to happen this election, but I do hope that at least within our political parties within Westminster we have a debate about what it might mean to be in the customs union, in the single market or out of them, and on the back of that we can make some sensible decisions. Thank you very much. Thank you to our panelists. Um, I'm Ros Taylor. I'm editor of the LSE Brexit blog. Please visit it and don't forget to take your possessions with you. Thank you.